thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. All right. Good morning. My name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. We are so glad that you have chosen to spend part of your weekend here with us, especially if you are a first-time guest. Uh, Let us know that in the chat bar or send us an email if you feel more comfortable with that, info at sojournpdx.org. We'd love just a chance to get to know your story and get to know you a little bit better. For the last month, as a church, we have been looking at the Sermon on the Mount in a series we've been calling Kingdom Manifesto, and we've been seeing the ideals that Jesus expects his followers to live by in this upside-down kingdom that he came to reign in. And it's been completely opposite the way that, that really, if we're honest with ourselves, how we would have uh, done things, the way that Jesus came in and presented them to his early followers and to us as well. This morning, we're going to continue in our series, and we're going to be back in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew 5. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 30. Once again, it's Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. Now, it's important for us to remember exactly where we are in the Sermon on the Mount as we've been going verse by verse. And when you preach verse by verse, it actually takes you to some very uncomfortable places at times. But what we've seen, Jesus is offering us a new kind of life. Jesus is offering us a blessed life, and he is inviting us into an upside-down kingdom that looks nothing like one that we would have ever imagined. Now, the portion of the sermon that we are in now is dealing with relationships. Now, we all have relationships, whether you're single or not. You have a relationship with your boss or your coworkers or your roommates or your neighbors, or if you are married with your spouse or with your children or, or, or with your parents or whoever it may be. And Jesus comes in, and he confronts our human interactions. He confronts anger, which we looked at last week. He's going to confront lust this week. He confronts marriage. He confronts promise keeping. He confronts revenge. And he confronts love. A light topical preacher, Jesus says, right? He just comes up with these light topics and makes us all feel warm and fuzzy inside. No, quite the opposite. Today, we'll be examining Jesus' teaching on lust, which means if you're joining us online this morning, you're really thankful you joined us online, but you're probably still a little bit uncomfortable depending on who's in the room with you. And if you are joining us live, you're probably looking for the exit about now that you know what the sermon is going to be about. Now, I have done my best to keep this sermon PG, but there are parts that may be considered PG-13. And I only tell that in the event that you don't want your children to maybe hear this sermon or you maybe you want to listen to it first and then go back and let them listen to it. That's completely understandable. So this would be the time to allow them to go ahead and exit to another room in the house or maybe to go and, and watch something on Right Now Media this morning as we go throughout this sermon. Um, I'm not going to say anything the Bible doesn't say, so I'm not trying to be crass or anything like that in this sermon, but I did want to put that warning out there on the front end just in case so I don't get myself in trouble and so that I don't receive some kind of nasty emails from you all this week. Now, if you missed our our message last week on anger and murder, I do encourage you to go and listen to it because these six human interactions that Jesus is dealing with over these next several weeks make more sense in their entirety when you see all of them presented together. Now, if I'm completely honest with you this morning, I was really uncomfortable as I prepared this message all week. In fact, I'm still even really uncomfortable right now as this sermon is being recorded because 
during parts of today's message, it should be uncomfortable. It should cause every single one of us to have some kind of discomfort because what we must recognize as a church and as you know, part of the universal church is that we've done a horrible job living out our sexual ethic to the world around us, as it seems that we see more and more hypocrisy coming out of the church every single year. In some cases, it seems like every single month we hear of a new scandal or a new story. Yet, as the church, what do we love to do? Typically, when people think of the church and think of sexual ethics, we love to point our finger and yell at people and say, you have got it all wrong. But here it is time and time again. It's like we hear yet another and yet another story of some type of scandal coming out of some Christian ministry, a church, or a university. And we hear these stories of immoral sexuality. We, we hear these stories of abuse. We hear these stories of, of cover-ups and things that you think there's no way this could ever happen. You know, I've only been in, in pastoral ministry for uh, five years or so, but even in my short time in pastoral ministry, and I've been in ministry much longer than that, it's almost like nothing surprises me any longer. The stories that I've heard come out of different churches that, that just no longer surprise me. And the reality is that this is a deeply concerning issue outside the church, but even more deeply concerning of how prevalent it is in the church. And so for our purposes today, let's do this. Let's take a break from pointing our finger at the world and telling them that they've got it all wrong, and let's focus on ourselves. Let's focus internally and see what Jesus wants to address in our lives and our church. Now, one of the reasons that we have found ourselves where we are is because here we, here's what we've often done as the church. I think about even, even my own story of, of growing up. And the church often has said something, we'll read a passage like this. And so the church will say, don't lust. But maybe you're the person who is struggling with lust and, and you're almost like raising your hand going, okay, I've heard you. Can I get any help? In the posture of the church, of course, the church wouldn't say this, but the posture of the church has often been, nope, figure out for yourselves. Just don't do it. And, and so you find these people going, but I'm struggling here in this area. And so if that is you today, if, if you hear this, you think, man, I'm struggling. And, you're, and you maybe even feel that, um, that discomfort because of others in the room who, who maybe they don't know that you're struggling. If you are struggling in this area, let me say this on the front end. Let us help you. Let us walk a journey with you because we believe that at Sojourn, it is okay to not be okay. Let me say that again. We believe at Sojourn, it is okay to not be okay. We don't want to be a church that just gives you the commands and say, don't lust. We actually want to be a church that helps each other live out those commands. You know, that's why we talk about being a family at Sojourn. So part of this family is saying, you can come with your struggles. You can be open and honest with those and let us come around you and let us walk a journey with you to help you through that struggle. Because reality is we all have struggles. Some of us are more visible than others and some of us are more hidden than others. This, the one that we're looking at today is honestly probably more hidden most oftentimes. This isn't one that people come out. If you struggle with eating and you eat too much, then, then we're going to see you pack on the pounds. And it's going to be a little bit evident of what your struggle is. But here, this one is a little bit more, more hidden and it causes a little bit more, more shame. But we all have struggles. Let us help you if this is your struggle. And here's what we're going to do in our time together. We're going to attempt to answer three questions. And so if you're taking notes, this will be a time to jot down these three questions as we look at verses 27 through 30. The first question is we're, we're going to ask or answer the question is, what is Jesus addressing in this text? What is it he's actually addressing? The second question is, what is Jesus' response to the issue in the culture? And the third question is, what should we do? In other words, how should we respond as the people of God in response to how Jesus teaches? 
So let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll get into our passage this morning. God, we want to come to you and just take a moment to set our minds and our hearts on you. God, we've been led in, in worship this morning through by Joseph, and God, as we declared out your praises, and now as we enter into what has the potential to be a really uncomfortable sermon for all of us, for the hearers, for the speaker, God, for all of us receiving this word from you. God, I ask that we would be reminded this morning that what it is you've called us to as a countercultural lifestyle in regards to our sexual ethics, but God, also that we would realize that we don't have to be ashamed because you have provided a way at the cross, God, that we can come to you this morning. So I pray for every single person, every man, woman, child watching, every man, woman, child who's gathering with us this morning at the stamp building, God, if there's a confession that needs to happen, a repentance that needs to happen, or a, a restoration in these regards, God, that that could take place because your spirit is moving and working. In your name, Jesus, amen. Amen, church. So the first question, what was Jesus addressing? To answer that, let's look at verses 27, 28 of Matthew chapter five. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what we see here in this context is the rabbis have come in again. And what, what the rabbis are typically doing at this time is they're attempting to limit the scope of the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So what do they do? They give us a narrowly defi narrow definition of a sexual sin, and they conveniently give us a broad definition of sexual purity as a way to essentially get around the law. So they always try to kind of soften what the law actually says. But Jesus, a teacher in his own right, comes in, he does things completely differently. Jesus comes in and he extends the prohibition of the divine, um, the divine prohibition by affirming the true meaning of God's command. And he says it's actually much wider than the mere prohibition of sexual immorality. And so the, the rabbis of the day were teaching just sexual immorality. And Jesus said, no, it actually goes much, much further than that. And so it's important for us to, to frame this, really to look back to two weeks ago. So if you missed two weeks ago, we, we talked about the law. And, and oftentimes we've made the mistake in, in the church and, and modern day that we think, man, Jesus, he got rid of the law. And Jesus said, no, I did not come to abolish the law. Jesus said, I actually came to fulfill the law. And so we're going to see part of that law this morning when it comes to sexual ethics. And so the, the title of the sermon this morning, this morning is Kingdom Purity. And we're going to see what it looks like to be pure in the kingdom of God. Now, unlike us today, when we look back at this context of Jesus, here's what we do most oftentimes when it comes to sexual ethics, especially if you are dating and it's kind of like prior to marriage. Here's what people often want to know. Where is the line? Is the line here? Is the line here? I want to know where that line is in my relationships. And we like to ask this question, what can I do? And then we like to say, what can I not do? And so we want to know exactly how far can I go before I've kind of crossed this boundary that Jesus is talking about here. You know, we, we always like to be right on, right on that line if possible. And so the teachers of the law of, of this time, what they were basically doing is saying adultery is wrong. So do not commit adultery and you are fine. You know, and so that was their line. They define the line as adultery. And so, you know, I can hear the conversations now. I've had these conversations over the years with, with friends and family members. And they think, man, if the, if the, if the line is adultery, there's all kinds of other things that we can do, right? Surely there's there's other things and there's other other things that we can get into and, and be okay, right? You know, we kind of have that guilty conscience. It's all right if I do this and this and if I go to, to this base, as long as I don't cross all the way to adultery. And so even to this day, the sexual ethic of our culture is do whatever you like. 
Do whatever you like in regards to sexuality as long as you don't take from another man or woman and you don't hurt anybody else. So you do you. If this is what you're into, it's okay. Do whatever it is you want as long as you don't take from someone else's, in other words, don't take someone else's husband, don't take someone else's wife, and everything else is kind of fair game. Do it if you like. But Jesus came in and Jesus overthrew that kind of thinking. Do not think that God is okay with the kind, this kind of thing because he is not. God is not okay with this just going, as long as I don't commit adultery, I can do anything else. Because what Jesus is going to show us is what you do to your body actually matters to your soul. And so he takes this very, very seriously. And so this is the, the, the first question. What Jesus was addressing was, was just this, this sexual ethic. And the second question is, what did Jesus actually say? Look back at verses, verse 28 with me. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus comes to us and says, do you want a line? You're asking where the line is. Do you want a line? Well, guess what? You've already crossed that line a long time ago. And so just as we saw last week with the prohibition of murder included angry thoughts and insulting words, in the same way this week, she's saying the prohibition of adultery includes your lustful look and your lustful imagination. So just as we can commit murder with our words, we can commit adultery with our hearts and our minds. So think about lust. Where does lust begin? Lust begins in our heart. And think about our hearts, the, person of a center, uh, the center of a person's identity. It is not enough to maintain physical purity alone. One must also guard against mentally in the act of unfaithfulness. Jesus did not come in the New Testament and add to the Old Testament law, but Jesus has come in and he's correctly interpreting it. For even the Ten Commandments, God had required purity of heart. Exodus 20, verse 17 tells us this. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your neighbor's. And so Jesus here, he's against fantasizing with an inappropriate person. And he knows where it eventually will end. As his brother James reminds us in, in James 1.15, he says, and then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And so this is why he's saying, do not fantasize about these things because after your desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, what does it do? Sin will give birth to death. Now, I think it's important that we, we kind of pause for a moment and Let's make sure we look at what Jesus is not saying. I think oftentimes we've gotten this wrong in the church and this has really confused a whole generation of people. You know, I, I grew up in the generation and youth group in church. So There's this whole movement called True Love Waits. Okay, I'll let you kind of figure out what that means. But I think we, we, we didn't go far enough in our discipleship of sexual ethics. So let's make sure that we get clear on what Jesus is not saying this morning. First thing is, Jesus isn't saying sexual desire is wrong for it is not. So do not feel shame for your sexual desire. That is normal. That is natural. That is God-given. In fact, sexual relationships within the commitment of marriage are anything but God-given and beautiful. There should be no shame. You know, you think about the ultimate union of a man and a woman is a beautiful, God-ordained thing, okay? I'm, I'm, right now, I'm speaking to a camera, so it's a little bit easier to say this, but sex is, is beautiful. It, it's great, and it is given by God, so you can thank God for that. Think about our sexual desires. They stick with you, as does temptation. If you're like me, I remember growing up and as a teenager, think, man, when I get married, and I got married, you know, I'm married 21 years old, when I get married, like, man, all my sexual temptations are going to go away, and they're going to be completely fulfilled my wife. The temptation does not go away. It sticks with you. Those, those desires stick with you. And the teaching of Jesus here refers to the unlawful sex outside of marriage, 
whether practiced by married or unmarried people. He's not even forbidding us to look at a woman, okay? There's, there's a recognition here of attraction. There's a recognition here of beauty. But what he does do is he forbids and he condemns a lustful intent and look. And here's the reality. We all know the difference. We all know the difference. If we see someone walking down the street, we might say, man, that is a beautiful individual. That's a beautiful person. And you're right because they're made in the image of God. But you, you know when you've crossed that line and when you, st- when you start having other thoughts and, and going to places and, and, and imaginations that you should never go. And that's what Jesus is condemning. That is what Jesus is forbidding. And, and here's what we should do. We should be discipled in the church on how it is that we handle these desires. Because desires are normal. Desires are natural. Desires are God-given. But we need to be discipled on how it is that we handle these desires. The second, second thing that, uh, that Jesus isn't saying Though the pronouns are masculine in focus here, you know, we're kind of going back from the original translations is why they're, they're translated here. is really kind of focusing on a man looking at a woman. Jesus isn't saying that this is exclusively a masculine problem in nature. Part of the reason it's written that way is the context at that time. But here's the reality, especially in 2020. Ladies lust too. So ladies, if you're listening this morning, don't think this is a sermon that you check out and you're looking at your, your boyfriend or your husband and say, man, you need to pay attention to this. Ladies, this is also for you this morning. Now, it may look different, but we see examples as back as early as the Bible times as Potiphar's wife was coming on to Joseph. And Joseph, he, he fled and she continued to, to pursue him. To argue that the reference here is only to a man lusting after a woman and not vice versa, or only to a married man and not an unmarried man, since the offender is said to commit adultery, not fornication, we'd be just as guilty as the same fallacy that Jesus is condemning of the Pharisees. And so this is for both men and women. In fact, the fastest growing consumer of online pornography is women. And we see women, as many women stray in their marriages today as we do men. Now, I don't point that out. This isn't to belittle women. So women, please stick with me this morning. This is not to belittle you in any way. But what this is to do is to recognize that this is equality. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that men and women, we all have the equality to go towards sin. We all equally are prone to go towards sin, but we also all have this equal need for Jesus. And this is what true equality means. The third thing that Jesus isn't saying He is not saying that all sexual sin has the same impact or consequences. His emphasis is that any and every every sexual practice, which is immoral indeed, is immoral also in look and thought. So all of it is serious because all of it is sin, and God takes sin seriously. But do not be so overwhelmed by the shame this morning to stay there and say, well, I've gone there in my mind. I might as well do the real thing. I think sometimes we can misinterpret a passage like this and say, well, I've, I've had these thoughts and now I'm realizing these thoughts are wrong, but God said I'm just as guilty as I've actually done the, the, the dirty deed. I've done the act, so I might as well just go ahead and go do it this weekend, right? No, stop. That is not what he is saying here. Yes, it is all sin in God's eyes, but the fact that you haven't gone beyond your thoughts and your imagination is, is actually an act of grace itself because God has, has preserved you from going to that degree. So if that is you this morning, let us help you. We are a church that invites all people to take a journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus faithfully in the city of Portland here in our culture. And and we want to create a culture that's one of confession and repentance. And look, guys, we don't expect people to be fixed by tomorrow. I never preach a sermon and think, man, this is going to be a quick fix. Anyone who's struggling with last week with anger or or this week with lust, it's it's going to happen. As soon as the sermon's over, we're going to pray and everything's going to be good. 
I don't expect you, this to be fixed tomorrow, but we're, we know that we're all on this journey. We all have struggles. We all have areas of sin that we, we still kind of go back into. So let us take this journey with you of learning what it means to follow Jesus and learning what it means to bring our struggles underneath the, the reign of Jesus as well. Now, if it has turned toward adultery, confess. The one you fear the most who's gonna learn about it already knows. God already knows where you've gone in your mind. God already knows if you've acted on anything physically. And so my encouragement to you this morning, my pastoral encouragement and plea to you is confess because God already knows. The one who, only one who can truly condemn you already knows what you've done. And so confess and let us take this journey with you. Now you might be wondering at this point, why did Jesus make lust such a big deal? I mean, Jesus did, God did give us these desires after all. So why does Jesus come and make this such a big deal? Now, usually we hear about Jesus in the church culture. We think, let's be more like Jesus. Yes and amen. But then we get to this and we're thinking, wait a minute, Jesus. I mean, you've already told me that my angry thoughts and man, Jesus, I've been angry some this week because of the election that, that those are, can be wrong. And now you're telling me some of my, my, my natural tendencies that you gave me are, are, are also wrong. Like, come on. So Ross Lester provides six reasons that Jesus detests lust. And I think that we can track with all of these. The first is, he tells us it diminishes sex by making it cheap, by making it less than what it was meant to be. It, it, it makes it almost animalistic. The second thing and second reason that Jesus detests lust is it dehumanizes. It does this both to the luster and the one that's being lusted after. You have, you have to dehumanize yourself to one who cannot control one's impulse like an animal. It also turns the one being lusted after into an object of gratification. That, that lowers one beyond, beyond humanity, beyond one who's created the image of God. It's, it's, it's made them into this object. And, and, and if you're the one lusting after, then an object of gratification for yourself. The third reason Jesus detests lust is lust imprisons. It's addictive by nature. And what else does lust do? It causes shame that cripples. Once again, some of us, we can see our struggles. You know, once again, I, I use the analogy, if, if, if you want, or want to gorge yourself and overeat, we'll see you pack on the pounds. It'll be very evident. And we can say, hey, brother, I, I think you need to, you know, back off the cookie jar a little bit. We may not say it that way, but, you know, you guys know me. I go through these waves of going on whole 30. And I get real strict and I lose 40 pounds. And then I'm kind of on the upward swing of that trend right now as we move into uh, Thanksgiving and the Christmas season. And so you guys say, Matt, man, I think you've, I think you've gotten things out a little whack here. But, but this sin is one that's, that's kind of more private of nature. Naturally so, but, but because of that, it also causes a lot of shame, and that shame can just cripple people. A recent study, guys, listen to this. A recent study showed that between 2015 and 2017, in the space of three years, human beings watched a combined total of one million years, one million years worth of pornography on one website alone. A million years. Can you guys imagine what the human race, what the human population can do with a million years of our efforts given towards something else? God knows we would have a, 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 a cure for COVID by this time. We'd probably have a cure for, for diabetes and AIDS and all these other things. But one million years in a three-year time span spent on pornography, on one website alone. Lust imprisons us, guys. The third reason, fourth reason Jesus detests lust. Lust lies. It lies about lust. It lies about satisf satisfaction. It lies about human beings and, and, and them becoming objects. The fifth thing that lust 
does and why Jesus detests is lust escalates. What I mean by that is it can't deliver on its promises because they're lies. And so it starts with with porn and and then maybe it's social media and sometimes it can turn to stalking and and eventually the porn's not enough. So then you got to actually go act on these things and then it it escalates and it takes you to places that you would never have gone. Once again, it imprisons you, but then it escalates even further because because eventually what they call soft porn wasn't enough. So you have to go to hard porn and then eventually have to go do something else. And the sixth reason that Jesus detests lust is lust causes shame. Lust causes shame. It keeps the people of God miserable. So many people are haunted by this sin. Even even now, the enemy is whispering to you, if you're one who struggles with this, that that even they, if they only knew about you, they wouldn't want you to be part of this church. If they only knew about you, they wouldn't want you tuning in this morning. And so the enemy will whisper these lies to us because this is a sin that causes shame on God's people. And so that leads us to our third and final question. What does Jesus say we should do as a result? Look at the last two verses, 29 and 30. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. <laughs> wow, Jesus, Jesus really gentle, huh? For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, the right side of the body stood as the more powerful, more important. Not because if you're right-handed, that is true, but namely because the majority of people in the world, even to this day, are right-handed. That's their dominant side. And so that's why it refers to the right side of the body. But if you are left-handed, once again, just like our ladies didn't get off the hook this morning, you don't get off the hook either. It's just the reference of the times. Now think about the eyes. This is the medium in which we are tempted to lust because you see one. And the hand represents the physical actions that result from lusting. And so what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is known to use a deliberate overstatement. And so he does a deliberate overstatement. He says, cut it off. And he's doing this to emphasize the importance of maintaining exclusive devotion to one's spouse. This means for us today, modern day, 2020, sojourn church, that we should be willing to give up even things of great value if they are leading us to sin. And here's the reality. That might be different for every single one of us. Some of you might be able to handle something that others of you can't handle. And so those who can't handle should probably get rid of it. And those that you can't handle, you have the freedom to keep that thing. But what we do know is Jesus is calling us, all of us, to be sacrificial and radical in our pursuit of holiness. And so in part of our pursuit of holiness is how we deal with lust. Now, the command to get rid of the troublesome eye and the hands and feet is an example of, of God's or the Lord's dramatic figure of speech. He was not advocating for a literal physical self-mutilation. Okay, so I'm hoping that next week, those of you who do gather and we see a group that I don't see a bunch of hands cut off or that I see people walking around with one eye or no eyes. Jesus was not advocating for a literal self-mutilation, but he was advocating for a ruthless moral self-denial. Now, on the surface, it is a startling command to pluck out one's eyes. I can imagine the original hearers thinking, man, all right, where's the stick? I got to go ahead and get my eye out. Or, man, hey, Peter, can I borrow your sword? I need to cut my hand off. But throughout church history, there have actually been some who've gone to this degree, who've literally mutilated themselves. Uh, origin of Alexandria is probably one of the most known. It was extreme interpretations of scripture. And so he went as far as desire to living this out that he got castrated and he made himself a eunuch. Can you imagine going to that degree if you want to take this verse literally? Now, 
Warning, do not take, do not do that this morning. That is not what Jesus is advocating for here. But we do see examples throughout church history of those who want to take this so seriously. And they took it so radically that that is what they actually went and did. John Stott says, if your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, the objects you see, then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away. And we're now blind, so you could not see the objects which previously caused you to sin. Again, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, because temptation comes to you through your hands, things you do or your feet, places you visit, then cut them off. That is, don't do it. Don't go. Behave as if you had actually cut off your hands and feet and had flung them away and were now crippled and so could not do the things or visit the places which previously caused you to sin. That is the meaning of mortification. So practically, church, what does this look like for you? What does this look like for you today? How do you live this out? First off is you know where you're being tempted. You know where you are being tempted. And that might be different from anyone else who's part of our church or any of those who are tuning in this morning. And so for you, it might mean you need to remove some things from your life. It won't stop your thoughts by removing those things. I mean, I think even about um, those who, who physically would remove their eyes throughout church history, taking this verse literal, they still had their thoughts, they still had their minds, they, and they couldn't remove that unless they actually wanted to just kill themselves. And so it won't stop your thoughts, but it will help remove you from giving in. And so for some of you, maybe that's TV. Maybe it's Netflix or, or HBO Max, or maybe it's social media, or, 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 or maybe it's the internet altogether. I don't know. You know where you struggle. You know what you might need to remove. Now, I don't think we are to get legalistic here. So don't hear me saying that. On what we can and can't watch and on, on if we can have Netflix and HBO Max and, and what we can and can't read. I don't, I don't think we're supposed to get legalistic here. But here's what we do have the freedom to say for this is what Jesus himself said. If your eye causes you to sin, don't look. If your foot causes you to sin, don't go. And if your hand causes you to sin, don't do it. So he, Jesus, did not require all of his disciples, metaphorically speaking, to blind or mutilate themselves, but only those whose eyes and hands and feet were causing them to sin. And so what is necessary for all of those with strong sexual temptations? Once again, some of you don't struggle with this at all. Some of you are thinking, man, this is not really even that relevant of a sermon, aside from knowing the statistics in our culture and our society. But some of you don't struggle with this at all. We say, man, praise God, but you struggle somewhere else. But for some of you, this is an area of struggle. And indeed, for all of us in principle, is, is the discipline in guarding the approaches of sin. We have to eliminate from our lives certain things, which though some of, us, some of them are innocent in and of themselves, and some of us can handle them, but things that can easily become a source of temptation. In his own metaphorical language, we find ourselves without eyes, without hands, and without feet. We may have had to become the most culturally maimed in our society in order to preserve our purity of mind. And so the only question is, for the sake of this gain towards holiness, towards looking more like Jesus, are we willing to bear that loss and endure that ridicule? You know, I think about our culture. I think about specifically Portland culture. You know, we have more strip clubs per capita than anywhere else in the country. Okay, we have lots of fantasy shops. And, you know, we, we just have this really weird... Um, regards to sexual ethics, where it is really do whatever the heck it is that you want to do, okay? If, if you were born a man, you want to be a woman, go be a woman. If you're born a woman, be a man, go be, be a man. And, and, and there's just no regards, it seems like, for sexual ethics at all. And so as the people of Jesus, as this counterculture, are we willing to do what it takes, even if it means standing out and looking different? 
Are we willing to do what it takes in order to pursue holiness, in order to pursue even ridicule from the culture around us? Reality is, I look back at, at Jesus' day, I'm sure it was tough, but it's even tougher. It's gotten worse, even from when I was a kid, because now we all have access to, to these things called phones in the palm of our hands. And so we literally have access to thousands upon thousands, probably millions of, of websites and social media and all these things. And so it's gotten even, even more challenging. So this is one reason, let me plug this, that don't give your kids cell phones. There's all kinds of things on them. They don't need them. They need to be kids. I see kids my children's age running around with cell phones. I think, what are you doing? And you might say, oh, but they need to have a phone because I want them to ride the bike down the street. You can get these things called a dumb phone. Okay, They still sell little flip phones, and I think they actually call them a dumb phone. Not just the opposite of a smartphone. There is none of that stuff on there. You can call and text, and that's all you really need. That's really all I wish I had sometimes because I find myself distracted and constantly you know, on social media or whatever. I just sometimes I think, man, I need to get a dumb phone just to help my own sanity. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, uh, in regards to sexual ethics, said this. He said, throughout the early centuries of Christianity, when every kind of sexual behavior ever known to the human race was widely practiced throughout ancient Greek and Roman societies, the Christians insisted that sexual activity was to be restricted to the marriage of a man and a woman. The rest of the world, then as now, thought that they were mad. The difference, alas, is that today half the church seems to think so too. Half the church thinks the same so too. So it used to be a time where, where the church would be set apart and, and they say, man, this is, this is what we see, that, that the biblical ethic is regarding sex between a man and a woman. But now half the church, and I would say probably more than that in our city, in our culture, thinks that we are mad if that is the ethic that we hold to. So how is it that we are to live this out, church? If you're one who struggles with lust, it is, fine, it, is, it is wise to find one with whom you can be completely honest and accountable to. James 5, 16 says, it teaches us to confess our sins to one another. And so how is one way that you can live this out is confess. Confession is a spiritual practice. It's, it's, a, it's one of those practicing the ways of Jesus that I think a lot of times we just think about attending church, reading the Bible, and praying, but confession is a really real practice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, in, in confession, one is approaching not just a fellow Christian, but the grace of God. Mediated, meditated through the other Christian. When I go to another believer to confess, I am actually going to God. He went on to mention several breakthroughs that occur when we confess to one another. Uh, breakthroughs in our community, break, breakthroughs to the cross, breakthroughs to a new life, and breakthroughs to assurance. And so lastly, church, let me say this this morning. Turn to Jesus. Jesus was the most faithful and complete and fulfilled human to ever live. But think about Jesus. Who was, was Jesus? Jesus was a single man. He never lusted. He never acted on the desires that were operating in his flesh. As we were told that he was tempted in every way that we were. And so today we would call that what? Less than human. Well, Jesus was the God man. He was, he was human, but he was also God. And, and so Jesus, today we say, man, you're depriving yourself. Yet we see Jesus was the most fulfilled human who ever lived in the history of the world. Jesus knows what temptation feels like. So this morning, if this is a temptation of yours, Jesus can resonate. Jesus relates. He was tempted in this way. You can turn to him. Think about Jesus. He went on a three-year camping trip with a bunch of smelly friends, and then he returned to have his feet washed by the hair of a woman. Imagine how her hair smelled, yet what did Jesus do? He did not sin. 1 John 6, 9 says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so church, this morning as we wrap up, maybe today you need to confess. Maybe that's the first step for you. Maybe you, you, you need to confess with someone in your household. Maybe, maybe you need to confess to a spouse or maybe you just need to get on the phone with a friend. Say, I just need someone to keep me accountable. So that may be your first step today. Maybe, maybe you feel shame this morning. Please, if you heard shame coming from me, I, that's the opposite of what I want you to hear. It is not too late to escape. This is a sin that once again, remember, one of the reasons Jesus detests this is this sin imprisons you. It makes you feel like you're trapped, like you're behind a prison bar. You think, man, if anyone knew, and, and this is the last time, but then you go back to it. And man, if anyone knew, this will imprison you, but it is not too late to escape. There is no shame. Let us help you. Once again, we all have our struggles. And so that's my plea to you this morning, church. Satan's gonna come in. He's gonna convince you that you have it all under control. He's gonna say, you're, you're good. You don't need to confess. You don't need anyone else in your life. Nobody else needs to know. And so what my, my encouragement, my advice to you this morning is silence, G, silence Satan his, by turning to his enemy. Turn to Jesus this morning and give this over to him. And church, let me pray for you and we're gonna respond to that end. God, I think this morning as we just take a moment, we looked at a really, just real practical life issue. God, the one that has plagued our society and culture. And God, and we think about the word of lust and sexual ethic and in regards to how your scripture presents these things and then in regards to how our culture and our world presents them, God, they look very, very different. Once again, we're reminded of the upside-down kingdom and the upside-down ethic that you came to bring. And so, Jesus, I ask that we would submit this area of our lives to you. God, if there's an obstacle, if there's something we need to remove out of the way, that we would be willing to take that step. And if we need help with that, God, that we would, we would confess to one another and that we can come together as a church, say, I need help in this regard. God, we sincerely want to be a church where it's okay to not be okay, but that it's not okay to stay there. That's not okay to stay not okay. And that, so God, that those who, who, who need to repent this morning would, would repent. God, that those who need to confess would confess and that we can come together as your church. God, as we pursue a greater holiness together as your people here in the city of Portland, God, perhaps one of the hardest cities to live out this sexual ethic that you've presented to us in our country. God, a lot of this message was uncomfortable for, for myself and for all of us this morning. But God, may we be reminded that this is your word. God, that these are the words that are written in red in many of our Bibles because they came from Jesus himself. This, this wasn't inspired words by men, but this is from Jesus himself. And God, that we are Jesus people and we want to look more like Jesus every single day in the way that we live out our lives. And so God, we thank you for this time. We give uh, this over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.